what we want to do is we want to ensure that Black students with special needs receive expert evaluations and accurate assessments. And that leads to proper diagnoses with evidence-based interventions and appropriate placements, regardless of ability to pay. Because if we can improve the outcomes, because that's what we want to get rid of. Remember all the stats, all the data, all the over-representation, under-representation, too much ID, too much ED, too much LD. Like we want to get rid of all of that. So in order to arrest that, we've got to address the students who need it the most. And the ones who need it the most could very well be higher income. Hello, and welcome to the Black and Dyslexic Podcast with Winifred A. Winston and LaDerek Horn, the show that unapologetically focuses on helping Black and underrepresented minorities navigate the special education process. We want to help raise awareness in the Black and Brown community, remove the stigma about learning disabilities, and provide you access to professionals in the space of dyslexia and special education that you need to hear from. Today, we're talking to Marcy Jackson. She's here with us today. So Marcy, welcome to the Black and Dyslexic Podcast. And just tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, I have to start with the most important piece of my identity, which is I'm the daughter of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. I'm a happily married wife and mother of seven. One recently diagnosed with dyslexia. So this is a perfect time uh, to have this conversation. My professional mastery is in special education advocacy and also adult education. My passion has always been to act for equitable access to education in many settings, particularly having been a higher education professional for nearly two decades. I've seen the struggles adult learners have firsthand because of the lack of K-12 special education intervention preparation. Now, with the opportunity provided by CS, which I hopefully I'll get a chance to talk about, we'll be able to target the most marginalized learners, uh, Black students with special needs, where for generations, literacy has been either illegal, inaccessible, or inadequate. Oh, wow. You nailed it. You nailed it. I mean, I started my career in higher education. That's the bulk of, of um, my experience. And then I, I only earned my master's because I wanted to teach. I did career development, right? And it was like, okay, the, the students aren't coming to the career center. Then I have to go to them. So being a teacher, teaching career research and development, I'm having them write career marketing documents. You know, we're doing presentations around interview skills. And I noticed something, but didn't quite notice what I was noticing. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, okay, we're writing this. Why isn't this? And okay, I said this and we did presentations and it was only after working in higher ed when I dropped down to be a high school teacher teaching mm. career research and development, did I get it? Did I fully mm. grasp, you know, the capacity at which our children weren't being equipped right? To even make it to college. So that's, that's a very interesting lens and perspective when you start at the higher education level and then you go back and you're like, wait a minute, K-12 didn't prepare them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And part of the work that I, I've done, so in adult education, especially in workforce development, you are training 
adults who are 40, 50, 60 years old on new careers. And so they're having to learn, they're having to read, they're having to perform exercises, they're having to communicate, conduct mock interviews. And so you realize in the scope in which they are learning and work experience and why it may have been limited. Because when you would then have conversations about, well, what was college like for you? What was your K-12 experience like for you? You start to see some of those experiences really come to fruition. And I think one of the most painful, I guess, uh, experiences I had was several years ago, I used to lead a nonprofit and we taught parenting in prisons. And And this was to, you know, to adults, men and women, men and women separately. But one of the more lasting memories I have are of my adult male students whose education outcomes were limited or thwarted because of the systemic racism impact. Most had never been read to during the precious formative years of childhood. So I read to them. I mean, can you imagine, you know, grown men who had never had their loved one read to them? It was therapeutic. I remember another a particular adult male student who had broken eyeglasses and his reading was very labored, obviously a victim of inadequate special education, though he tried, you know, he tried to read. And I thought that was very courageous of him. You, we know students often are teased and bullied and what uh, difficulties they go through not being able to read or stuttering or all of that. And then having eyeglasses and then being incarcerated. So I always applaud the courage of the adult students uh, behind bars. Yeah, we know there's a research, I mentioned this previously out of Texas, that said that 80% of the inmates were illiterate and then 40% were dyslexic. Mm -hmm. And we know with the First Step Act, if you're in a federal prison with your federal inmate, the government is now saying you must be screened and treated for dyslexia. Oh, excellent. I wasn't aware of that. That's excellent. Yeah. In 2018, Donald Trump signed that as a part of the First Step Act, but it has not been funded. Right. Mm -hmm. That's great. But where's the money? Mm -hmm. Right. I'm always checking for the RFPs because I said, who's going to screen? What type of screener are they using? That language screen versus an evaluation screen versus an assessment. I I don't know. Mm -hmm. There's definitely a difference. Yeah. And I'm yeah. thinking they know that, right? That we, we know there's a difference between that, that language. And then how will you treat it? What, what, what does treatment look like? So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. therein lies that. Yeah, it's definitely something to, to follow up on. If you could share more information, I would love to learn more. Uh, I have a colleague who also works in her role is uh, assessments and evaluations, particularly working with individuals who are, uh, I guess, on death row and uh, the psychological evaluation portion and how that really plays, um, you know, you really see where diagnoses and services were not applied throughout the proper points in the lifetime that lead to certain outcomes. So the school to prison pipeline is a big part of why I'm doing the work that I'm doing. Suspension rates are more than triple For Black students, you know, white students have a one in 20 chance of being suspended at least once. 
comparably, Black students have a one in six chance of being suspended, and a Black student with a disability has a one in four chance of being suspended at least once, largely due to inappropriate discipline for the disability. You know, it's, it's not appropriate. You know, for example, having restraints for non-threatening behavior of a student with autism. It's not necessary. And there's a, a quote by um, authors Gregory and Weinstein where they say, the effects of irresponsible discipline, including imposing punitive measures without understanding the consequences may affect a student's outcome in their adult life. And you know, that's essentially where the rubber hits the road for me, particularly is improving the opportunities in adult life. Oh, that is key. And that's just so on point because we, we see it. I've seen it personally, you know, in the documentation, looking at different assessments, the language used. So that is key. That is key. Tell us about the See Us program. Oh, wonderful. Okay. Well, CS, which I'll start with what it stands for. CS stands for Special Education Excellence for Underserved Students and provides no-cost expert special education advocacy to Black students with special needs because their outcomes have been negatively impacted by systemic racism in education. And CS is an initiative of a phenomenal educational advocacy group called Weinfeld Education Group. That's wegadvocacy.com. And see us is seeusadvocacy.com. Oh, and essentially what the goal is, is to, I'm sure many of your listeners have heard probably um, you read one article and it talks about over-identification. You read another article and it talks about under-representation. You, you know, if the numbers are, you know, it, it can be misleading or unclear. So what CS is doing is basically helping to address it head on. So it is true. It is very true that Black students are 40% more likely to be identified as having educational disabilities than their peers. It is true that Black students are twice as likely to be identified as having emotional disturbance and intellectual disability as their peers. And the reason why CS is so powerful is because among families of students with disabilities, those with lower incomes and who have children of color are less likely than their affluent and white counterparts to access their legal rights under IDEA. So what CS is aiming to do is to remove that barrier. So we know cost is often the reason, uh, but it's not just cost. Let me also say it's not just cost. It's, it's a literacy component. It's a, um, it's a leadership component. It's a family component. There are a lot of reasons why, why families don't have the opportunity to access and, and really engage in their rights. And so if we can make it aware, you know, I want to raise the awareness of the power of advocacy. I talk to so many people and they say, I didn't know you could have an advocate. I didn't, I didn't know that existed. I didn't, I didn't know that I don't have to be in the school alone. Um, I didn't know I could ask the teachers or the administrator for this. Uh, you know, there's so many I didn't knows. And so that is not a cost issue. That is not a funding issue. That is an information issue that we can address. 
Absolutely. It's one of the founding reasons, if, if I can say it like that, why we started the podcast to raise awareness, to remove the stigma, and to have listeners hear from people like you. I think I say in one of my, my um, clips, I want folks, Black and brown folks, to have access to the people that they should know, the people that mm -hmm. they should know about, the resources, like you said, that you know legally they are entitled to. That was one of the founding reasons because, you know, myself, I, I, I didn't know. I worked mm -hmm. in the school system and I still did not know, you know, how to help my daughter. I was taking books in the IEP meetings. Mm -hmm. I was reading out of the books and, <laughs> and I would leave the meeting in my car in tears, feeling like I didn't accomplish anything. And, and folks are telling me, oh, you did a good job in there. In hindsight, looking back, no, I didn't, <laughs> but I didn't even know or understand the value of having someone with me at that very first meeting, right? Mm -hmm. When, you know, to help guide me at the very beginning, uh, because now I know that data <laughs> and, and having the right data and asking for the right assessments, right? The right interventions made all the difference. And I had no clue. And I had I had friends who were educators, special educators, right? Mm -hmm. Reading specialists mm -hmm. who, who did not know, right? Mm -hmm. They thought mm -hmm. they were guiding me correctly, but they didn't even know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Marcy, can, can I ask, um, sure. how, do, how do families generally connect with you? You know, because I, I understand I'm, I'm a person who's dyslexic and my parents didn't understand a lot of their rights, um, mm -hmm. didn't understand the value of an advocate. I'm just curious with all that sort of lack of knowledge, how do folks even, even find you? And then I'm just, if you could share with us maybe a, a success story or a memorable experience of being able to support a, a family. Oh, absolutely. Uh, great question. So sometimes the title is considered education consultant. Sometimes it's considered special education advocate. And if you know that you can Google it and you can find out, oh, Okay, here's one. But if you don't know that title, that name, you might just type in, how can I get help? You know, help for special education. And you might get an attorney that might pop up. You might get um, some laws, uh, maybe get directed to the government website where, you know, you can learn about IDEA. But what should happen is there at the school level, when the parents are having difficulty, the school should be able to recommend, here's how you can get additional help. And every state has a free resource. In Maryland, uh, the Parents Place of Maryland is a free resource for families to get support. Every state has a funded resource for parents to access free support and special education. And what we want to do is connect with physicians, connect with psychologists, connect with attorneys, and all those other touch points where parents are going and saying, hey, I need help. So that when you go to your doctor, your pediatrician, and, you, and the pediatrician either identifies that there's a concern or you bring the concern to the pediatrician that you can together say, okay, who else do we need to involve? Because the pediatrician might say, well, go to the school and tell the school you need help. And so that's what the parent will do. And then we all know where that likely um, leads. And so we need, it's a great question you asked, Lederick, because there is no process 
you know, it's sort of if you ask the school for help, they're going to direct you to internal resources. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what parents are trying to expand off of is more external resources. I hope that answers that first question you had. It does. And it reminds me, if I can just jump in, Parents Place of Maryland. I've actually had the experience of doing some trainings with them in the state of Maryland. I think that was maybe back in 2018 or 2019. And if I remember correctly, they're one of the technical assistants, uh, like parent support centers that we have. Like here in New Jersey, we have SPAN, which is our you know, like state go-to for when parents need supports. And I'm just mentioning that because I want our listeners to be aware that in every state, there's one of these, these centers, if, if not more than one that they can go to. Okay. And so now for the, the success story. And, you know, here in Maryland, we also have here in Baltimore city, it's called partners for success. And every district, every school district in the state of Maryland has a hub a resource center if you're a parent who um, whose child receives special education services. And like in Baltimore County, they have a library. Where I live, my zip code borders the city and the county, although I'm a city resident. And so I was able to go to the Baltimore County Library because I found out about it. This is how I found out about it. One of the parents whose child had an IEP for dyslexia, I was you know just at a support group meeting and distraught about my IEP. And she said, well, Winifred, I'll meet with you. We can meet at the resource library. And I'm like, a resource library? Didn't know what she was saying. I said, okay, I know what that school is. And then I learned that they said, yes, you have this in your district, Baltimore City. Every school district in the state of Maryland, they may call it something different. Ours was called Partner for Success. And it is funded through MSDE. And I was able to check out books, right? The rights law books. I was able to check those out. They have webinars and resources around what should be in your IEP binder. They even give you a binder sometimes. Like they, it's a, a resource for parents, but again, it's internal. Some of them are housed at the school, right? So therein lies that impartial help that you're looking for sometimes, right? But, but it is definitely a, a resource that is available in Maryland in addition to the other ones you mentioned. And we jumped in there, Marcy. I'm sorry about that. You were- No you problem. Were, you were answering the, the second part of the question about uh, a memorable experience supporting a family. Yeah, I think one of a more recent experience is I'll talk about a student who is it was it was a challenging student. This was a student in the county who didn't have the proper diagnosis. The diagnosis was not, um, so needed a diagnosis of autism because the family didn't, you know, didn't have one. And so the problem is assessment. So once the family was able to get the assessments, not only is it just having the assessments, but it's having the assessments accepted. So the school has to review these. If they're an outside evaluation, they have to, um, they go through a process of receiving and evaluating and accepting and determining if they want to add additional evaluations or assessments to receive them. And so in this case, they were accepted and they offered the child an opportunity to stay in the school that was closest to home. And that school was appropriate for kindergarten. Um, but it wasn't appropriate moving into first grade, second grade, third grade. And so what advocacy does is it helps to point out to the schools and to the family their options for placement. 
So oftentimes schools may not, the goal is certainly to be in a least restricted environment. We want students to be able to be successful in a typical world, so to speak, you know, be able to navigate unless that's not appropriate for them. And so having, helping the school and the parents to understand that appropriateness is a really a pivotal position for the advocate because it's not about getting what the parents want. It's not about getting what the school wants. It's about getting what the child needs. And so we're very child-centered. Even if the parents want something, you know, and if as advocates, if we don't believe that's appropriate, we have to advocate for the best interests of the child. And sometimes that means parents don't want to work with us. They might, I've I've certainly had a situation, not many, but I did have a, a situation where a parent no longer wanted to work with me because she didn't like the fact that I didn't get her child uh, an IEP, meaning that that wasn't the end result. And that what she didn't understand is, as Winifred mentioned earlier, the importance of data. Data Data-driven decisions are essential in education and they are essential uh, just like in business and workforce, you know. So if there is not data, I can't support whether it's the school's data, our data, it's important that we make decisions. And so the integrity of the profession requires that we have enough data to support pushing forward. And when we do, oh, we push. And we, we use data, we use evidence, we use observations. And so all of that put together um, was her case was inconclusive. And so I couldn't push forward. Uh, but I did, I was able to have the team to reconsider it, you know, at a future point in time and was able to get some accommodations and uh, some adjustments made to our current planning, um, which was a 504 which is certainly appropriate to receive accommodations. But getting back to the family who, in talking about appropriate placement, it is about advocating for the child and appropriate placement. And so all of us were on the same board. The team, the school team was a positive team. Sometimes it works very well with collaboration. And so the child is uh, now in a program specifically for students with autism and is doing well. And so education is supposed to be a collaboration for all those that care towards the end of uh, the goal of achieving learning success. So while there are sometimes struggles along the way, we always as advocates approach the situation with collaboration in mind. How can we work together? What do you have? What do I have? How do we put these together to present and make it a team decision? And parents are part of that team. Even though you're not a part of the staff, you aren't salaried or um, you're not there in the building all day, you are part of that team. And yes, what you say goes. And I think that's a part of it. So when we talk about the barriers in special education, part of it is, of course, we talked about cost to advocacy and information, but it's also this awareness that that I do have the opportunity and the responsibility to kind of lead this. And so I encourage parents with that, you know, we, we always are inclusive, you know, okay, if we're in a, at an IEP meeting and the parent hasn't spoken, 
you know, or a parent hasn't been considered, we stop the meeting and we say, we need to hear from the parent at this time. You know, parent, what do you feel about this? Because that has often been the history around special education is decisions are made for the child without, you know, consideration of the parent. And so now it's, it's important that we are including the parent. So hopefully that answered your question. Yes. Thank you. Can you tell us the CS program? Is it restricted to a certain location, a certain area? Um, What's the process if someone was interested in accessing that service? Okay. So Weinfeld Education Group, we have advocates in Maryland, DC, and Virginia, all over Maryland, Virginia, and DC. So if you live in those in any of those areas and you are interested in receiving advocacy support, you would go to the website or you would, which is csadvocacy.com, and you would, you know, use the instructions there to contact us. Okay. Okay. So I know that we have a here in Baltimore City, we have a tutoring center and it's specifically for low income. And I know this because when, when we were identified, my daughter was identified, I applied, but I was not low income. Right. Mm-hmm. But I also wasn't wealthy enough to pay. What mm-hmm. was it? 123 a session for tutoring. So mm-hmm. is there a sliding scale? Is, is it? Is, Great is, question. So the advocacy group, so the Weinfeld education group does have sliding scale. Yes. It does have sliding scale. See us specifically, however, it doesn't have a funding threshold. The goal is to provide no cost advocacy because wow. of exactly what you're describing. Mm-hmm. You know, that is often the barrier that we tend to face is you make too much or not enough. And what we know is essentially that we know why we're here. You know, we know why we're at this place. We know why we are in need. So knowing the impact of these last several, you know, hundred years and where we are now, we understand why we're here. So we don't need to prove it. We don't need to, you know, go through a lot of hoops and steps to say, you know, what we do ask is that if you can't afford it, please allow someone who can, you know, go ahead and pay for it. If you can afford it, pay for it. Absolutely. But if you, if you, the goal is to improve outcomes across our people. That's the goal is to improve the outcome. So whether you are in the haves or have nots, you still are behind. And that's that's the interesting thing. I think that's why sometimes our elders laugh. They're like, I don't care where you think you are on the economic scale, you're just as behind as somebody else. And so it's sort of, you know, we have to be mindful that we're all still in that arena of needing a leg up you know, there's still the advantage that has been gotten uh, by another group of people that has left another group still oppressed. Now, some are a little better off and have made tremendous strides, but as a whole, like we can't do this well without us all. So we have to move move the group forward. So I I like that about See Us in that it's not necessarily... um, you have to be quote unquote low income. That is amazing. Like that, that is amazing because like, I, I, I'm speechless. <laughs> like that, that's, that's so important because a lot of folks either will say, I can't afford it. 
So they don't even move forward. The first thing out of their mouths is I can't afford it. Or they're saying, well, I won't qualify, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I won't qualify because there's always um, this misconception that if you're black, you must be low income, right? You right. must be applying for low income. So that is amazing. Um, that That's just great work. I'm very rarely speechless, but I'm just like in awe that that barrier has been lifted. Yes, yes. And um I want to also, you know, when you talk about applying, what we want to do is we want to ensure that Black students with special needs receive expert evaluations and accurate assessments. And that leads to proper diagnoses with evidence-based interventions and appropriate placements, regardless of ability to pay. Because If we can improve the outcomes, because that's what we want to get rid of. Remember all the stats, all the data, all the over-representation, under-representation, too much ID, too much ED, too much LD. Like we want to get rid of all of that. So in order to arrest that, we've got to address the students who need it the most. And the ones who need it the most could very well be higher income. You know, they could very well. So so what are we addressing? Are we really, you know, when you really want to solve a problem, you address the problem. And so that's what we're doing here. And I also want to make it clear that CS is servicing the Black population most impacted by systemic racism. And those are the descendants of the U.S. form of chattel slavery. And, and we've had this question, this is why I raise it, because it's very important to note that oftentimes services and resources, so whenever you have grants and funds, and you might know this from working in higher ed, whenever you have grants and funds and programs and you know community development, they're always targeted towards a certain group of people, right? You have this profile, you know, you have to qualify. And that's okay because there are pockets of funds and for every group of people on the planet. So this particular group is not for, you know, while we service all students in advocacy, this particular funds are for those black students who are most impacted. And and those are the ones who can identify themselves and kind of trace back to to shadow slavery and great migration who you know who suffer today whether they see it you know you might not children don't know parents sometimes don't always know exactly how they are they are impacted but you know that they're suffering from uh, trauma systemic racism oppression and inequities in societal resources. And special education is a societal resource and there is inequity in that. I'm just thinking my my family's from the South, right? Um, I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, but my mother um, moved us back to North Carolina and she showed us the signs, like this is how I used to have to enter this particular establishment. She attended a, a, a segregated all black high school. My mother was born in 1936. And now as an adult with a child, I look back and I'm like, wow, she lived with so much trauma and pain. We normalized it. Right. And um, she was a nurse. She was a nurse. And I remember I worked at the same facility with her one time and some older white people was saying some very nasty things to me. And I said, ma, how can you work here? You know, Mm. and she gave me, you know, very passive, like, oh, well, they're old. They're on their way out. But, you know, I'm younger and I'm thinking, you're not going to say those things to me. But, um, you know, just looking back, I, I think that just encompasses a lot of us. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. 
And yeah. the, the, you saying that, you know, it makes me think of many parents, um, regardless of color, that have been at the IEP table with me that I've been there to support. And they most often you'll find they are quiet. They don't know that they can say something. And so when you come from that, that place of that connection to slavery, where for years, and then obviously through Jim Crow, where you had to be quiet, that doesn't easily go away for many people. It continues. And so when you get in a setting around all these people who have these degrees or maybe accolades or titles, it's intimidating. And so many families are intimidated at that table and it doesn't make it any easier because the lack of compassion or maybe sensitivity or lack of awareness that sometimes you have to invite people to speak. When you're used to being able to say what you want, when you want to say it, as many of our um, white community are, you don't think that you have to, you're not considerate of those who don't necessarily have that level of confidence or, or awareness. Um, and, and I don't mean to, I, I, this is not a, totally across the board, but I'm just telling you that when you, that's just something you have, that has to be a culture in your family, like you're raised, you know, and me and my family, we were always raised in sort of this leadership mindset, this mindset of being children of the most high, therefore you, you rule the earth, period, regardless of what you look like. So, so there are certain spaces and comforts that I've always felt, but I know that's not the norm across all of our people. And I think that I would love for our teachers who are not teachers of color, who are listening to this podcast to know, teachers and staff and administrators to know, we want you to be aware, to extend the invite, be a little bit more forthcoming, let people know, over communicate. We're going to be having a meeting to talk about this. The parent isn't invited yet, but I want to let you know we're going to be talking about this. Is there anything you want me to bring up? I wanted to give you a heads up. We're behind the scenes talking about when a meeting might be. Can I give some consideration to your availability as I advocate or as I, you know, speak to my colleagues, you know? So if this leads me to another point, there's a course that I designed for continuing education credits online. So I can get you the website, but if you go to csadvocacy.com, it'll be there. But that course is called Identifying and Removing Obstacles for Black Students with Special Needs. And it's a course for teachers and administrators and staff who want to learn how to be participatory in this process of getting us to equity. And it goes through six modules. It's asynchronous, so you can take it whenever you want to. But it's a graduate level course. And depending on what university you might be a part of, you can get uh, credits. So it's important that, you know, teachers, you want teachers to be aware and staff and administrators to say, hey, there's no parent here. You know what, let's, let's make sure that we have on file that the parent said, you know, that they're not going to be here. Or let's pause and find out, is the parent in route? You know, is the parent going to be here? What is there, are there notes provided by the parent? Like really 
go the extra mile to be inclusive, to give parents a chance to have their voices heard. Because as we, as advocates, we always say that parents know best, know their children the best. We don't get, we don't say the teachers know the children the best. We say the parents know the students the best. I want to throw in there, Marcy, that what we often see too is that parents are a product of a failed system. Parents didn't get what they needed or felt like the school failed them. So they're, they're trying to advocate, but them themselves are still struggling because mm-hmm. they never had, you know, got the help and resources that they needed because of their parents, you know, interaction with the school district. So I find that a lot of parents, one, they find out that they have a learning disability after their, their child is identified. And two, they are doing the best they can with the tools that they have, right? And, and so I, I need administrators to be uh, aware of that, mm-hmm. right? Because this parent is struggling too. Notice the yes. signs, like r- recognize the signs. We're always looking at different articles or, or posting different things up in the classroom around signs and symptoms. This is what you see. Well, you need to um, look at the adults as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and part of that, yes, that also gets us into trouble, though it could. When we we want to, you do that with compassion, not with judgment. So if they're Absolutely. doing it appropriately in the lens in which you're speaking, that's great. But most often, unfortunately, it's done in the sense of judgment. So because the parents can't, won't, or are unable to, then their son or daughter can't, won't, or unable to. And they wind up getting a label or getting overlooked or uh, assumptions are made without proper evaluation or assessment. And that sometimes can be harmful. I've seen that many a times. And so we try to you know, I mean, it is true. We all are like our parents. I mean, we, we all are like our parents, good, bad, and ugly, right? Um, so it is true, but we have to make sure. And that's, that's why I love this role of advocacy, because we keep it focused. We bring it right back to where it needs to focus on. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we can generate a lot more compassion in the educational setting. And I think that's where what we had pre-desegregation. I think that's what we had. You know, we had a sense of we've got to make this work. We've got to love our own. And I think that's what we're starting to see more of is people are starting to say, okay, we got to keep loving our own. We got to do it more. We got to do it more. And I guess all I'm saying is wherever you are, love the student. Whoever you are, love the student. If you need help, get help to love the student. Whoever you need to get help from to love the student, love the student. If that's the physician, the school principal, the parent, the counselor, the psychologist, you know, we have to work together in order to make sure that student receives the love they need so we can prevent the negative outcomes that we consistently see. Marcy, can I, can I ask in line with the, the emphasis on the student, um, mm-hmm. we have many of our laws in place that you know, created special education support, uh, the rights and the abilities and the access of people with disability in a larger society because of the disability rights movement in part. Um, Mm -hmm. and, And some of that was, you know, 
actual people with disabilities putting their bodies on the line to say this is not fair right mm -hmm. um and oftentimes the roles of people of color in that movement are not uh spoken up as much as they should be but one of the things that i've, I've really pushed is that there there's also a, an important place in today's work for our young people to have a voice in being mm -hmm. a self-advocate and mm -hmm. so we've we've spoken to you know some of the school's roles and the parents voice but i just wonder in any of the work that you do does it focus in on making sure that we you know that you know uh that we give a voice right in those IEP meetings yeah to, to our students. yes so we do um i started out like winifred as a parent of a student with a disability and um as soon as I could, I had my student to come to the IEP meeting. And today I still do it. And I always ask the parents to do it as early as the child is able and as comfortable as the parent is. The child needs to know that there are these group of people around this table who are accountable for your education. There are these people around this table who, when you need help, are committed to helping you. And moreover, those individuals also need to hear directly from the student's voice. Right. So we always encourage the students to say, what works well for you? How is school going for you? What do you like about school? What don't you like about school? Because that's the best evidence right there is student voice, student behavior. And so if we can have the students present at any part of the IEP process, at the meetings, um, particularly, that's very useful. We do conduct as advocates observations. So we go into the schools and we observe the students so that we can provide the educational uh, expert perspective when we go into the meeting so that we can talk specifically about that individual student. We also ask uh, for some students who are older, like when I have my high school clients, I have this, the students to write as part of the, there's a part in the IEP where parents give their, their statements. And I always have the students to include and even if, if the team, you know, some teams are very interesting. Sometimes they'll say, well, we'll, we'll put the student part here and some will just include it. But it's important that it's read at that meeting and that it's included, that it's heard and that it's documented as part of the meeting notes that the student feels this way and the student feels that way. Right. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. We touch on this in other episodes when we talk about children advocating for themselves because that experience in K-12 is going to dictate how they advocate for themselves in higher ed, right? right? Yes. And, and we don't see them advocating in higher ed at all. <laughs> no, right. no. Yeah, because in higher ed, you don't have, while you have a disability support service department uh, across many colleges, you don't have someone coming to class checking on you and, you know, and asking, you know, once you're enrolled, oh, let me make sure, you know, that you have your documents in place. You have to go and receive those services. Um, oftentimes, uh, faculty at, in higher ed are not well educated on identifying students that might have special needs to even refer them to disability support services. So I really encourage uh, faculty in higher ed to continue to educate in themselves and be aware. Another uh, a great student point on our CS advisory board, one of our students, his name is Winston, your, your last name. <laughs> he is a uh, 
previous client of our directors, and he's on our board as a testimony, as an example of proper advocacy and interventions can help students with special needs be successful. He has his own business, very successful um, gentleman. So I think advocacy is a spectrum. It's a continuum, as you mentioned, you know, going all the way to higher education and then in the workplace, right? So you have to be able to then advocate for certain accommodations that you might need in the workforce. And to your topic on your podcast, reading is necessary to advance into higher education and to enter the workforce. People with disabilities are overall less likely to complete a bachelor's degree. And the disability unemployment rate for Blacks is the highest. It's at 21.6% compared to 8.6 for Asians, which is the lowest, you know? So, you know, everyone tells you that you know, when you're young, you're like, what do you want to be when you grow up, right? We have this aspiration for this profession. And so that's the family is encouraging the child to reach this attainment of this professional uh, point. But there are a lot of interventions that we need to make along the way to make sure that that happens. It, it made me think back to what we just talked about when I gave the example of my mom, right? And these adults not speaking up. Well, culturally, we aren't taught to ask for help, right? Yes. <laughs> um, you know, and that's a part of systemic racism because the the mm-hmm. misconception is that, well, I always say they talk about black folks are lazy, but we weren't lazy when we were building this country for free. Now that quote, I'm not taking out because I keep saying that, but <laughs> we are not taught to ask for help, yeah. right? Culturally, mm-hmm. you know, get through it, work through it. Mm-hmm. You, you know, don't ask for help. And, and I told one parent, you know, if your child needed glasses and they couldn't see, wouldn't you go get the glasses, you know, like, so they can see, put them on, get the right prescription. And, and now they can um, be successful. So, mm-hmm. so we need to look at it the same way when, when our children have learning differences, learning disabilities. And if you aren't given that foundation in K-12, I mean, I don't know how you are expected to then do it in higher ed and definitely in the workplace. You got to be comfortable with that and okay with the fact that, you know what, I learn differently and I need X, Y, and Z. So we find that a lot of kiddos are identified in college. A lot of young adults rather are identified in college because the demands of the workload starts getting to them. And then they, they are able to, you know, get that identification and then, you know, slowly ask for help and accommodations. But that part is really, really key. And I want parents to understand that you've got to start the younger, the better, right? The younger, the better. So glad you mentioned that. The achievement gap between Blacks and white, we always use Blacks and whites, right? That's the who, and that's so unfair to keep (laughs) making. This is really not about, it's not about Black and white. It's about have and have not, okay? Whoever, that's, that's really what it's about. And so that achievement gap begins as early as infancy and it continues to graduation. We already know, and you guys know better than anyone, that the ability to read is the biggest predictor of academic success. I remember um, going through Montessori uh, training um, because I've, I've just always been passionate about education. And, and the mindset there is math is reading. You know, So it's all about reading because you, everything is about the sequence and this process of putting things together. So it's not like reading is this isolated thing and this, this isolated task. It's part 
of your learning and your experience. Um, and I also learned, I have a dear colleague, Dr. Walter Dunson, expert in, in reading. And uh, he has a wonderful book called School Success for Kids with Dyslexia and Other Reading Difficulties. And he is a big advocate. Reading is a science, you know, so you have to teach it like that. Reading is how directions are spread, communicated. The almighty creator of heaven and earth himself instructed, you know, in his book that children um, to seek out of the book of the Lord and read. So, you know, once you understand this power of reading, you see why our children are still not being permitted to read. You know, it, it's just now the block is in the lack of quality reading instruction for black students, you know, so, but reading is essential. And I really encourage parents as hard as it might be, just 10 minutes here and there, just keep something nearby that you can have a book accessible. Because sometimes parents are like, I don't have time to read. And I've been there, like I said, you know, we, we have a large family. You know, you have to make reading accessible. So you've got to keep books in the kitchen. You've got to keep books in the dining room. You've got to keep books all over the place. So they're within an arm's reach. So when a, your child comes and asks you a question, you don't have to give them the answer. Oh, go grab that book, look on page so-and-so, or find, you know, look in the table of contents. You start to make reading a part of your living experience instead of making it a chore, a task. You know, it could be 10 minutes here and there. The schools ask, and I think this is the biggest thing I've learned. I am not a dyslexic expert. Again, I'm, I'm new to, you know, my child was recently diagnosed, but one of the biggest things that I've realized is that if you don't read and progress in reading, you won't get to that fluency level. And when you have a child who is struggling, it only takes, the schools ask for 20 minutes of reading a day. I think that was the biggest thing I learned was the, be, becoming an advocate, you know, all these years is really recognizing the school's expectation versus the science of reading expectation. First of all, there's a huge gap there. You know, the school's expectation is that you can read these words, you know, spelling stops around third grade, you know, in, in many schools. But the science of reading is huge. And so you wonder why children aren't reading very well by the time they're in second and third grade. It's because the expectations in many of the school settings are so low, um, much lower than the science of reading's expectations are. And, and I so will add I, that mm -hmm. you have to make... <laughs> Because most dyslexic children don't want to read, mm -hmm. right? Um, they're going to avoid it. So what we did was we had my daughter, and she doesn't like writing either, but her English teacher told us, you know, have her write the shopping list. Don't worry about spelling. Mm -hmm. Just have her get it down. Have her read it back to you, right? My daughter likes to cook. So we enroll her in cooking classes. If she wants to make that fabulous, whatever she makes, she's got to read the read recipe. The recipe, yeah. And, and this <laughs> summer they told me that, well, she actually told me after she did it that she volunteered to read live on Zoom. Oh my gosh, as a parent wow. who's been in this journey for a couple of years, I was ecstatic. I said, why didn't you call me in the room so I could hear? Why didn't you call me? She says, well, mommy, you were going to get all mushy. You know, she basically like, I got this, you know, so you find ways to incorporate it in everyday life. So you're basically yes. tricking them. 
right? Yes. Because they, m- my daughter is not going to pick up a chapter book and yeah. say, oh yeah, we're going to read this. No, mm-hmm. she may read a couple of sentences after she works with her tutor, but you know, if she's watching YouTube, right? And she wants to find something, she, she knows to use uh, speech to text, right? Mm-hmm. But what does it say on the screen when it pops up? right? As simple as the other day, she was watching something on Netflix, kept watching it. You know, that alert comes up and says, do, are you still watching? Do you want to watch and not have this pop up or exit? Something like that. She says, I said, well, mommy, the TV, something's going on with the TV. I said, well, what did it say? Did you read it? And she thought for a minute, she went back downstairs. She read it. She came back up. I don't know what the middle one says. There's a word in me. I don't know what the middle one says, but in my mind, I was like, yes, you know, so you incorporate it in everything, you know, and make it applicable to something that they enjoy because they won't pick up a book. (laughs) Typically, that's not what they're going to do. And I'm listening to you telling the story of her volunteering to read on Zoom. And as a dyslexic, I am both extremely proud that she's, you know, gotten to the point where she's able to do that. And then also like terrified, right? Like every opportunity that I've ever had to have to read out loud, even in a professional setting, it, it's almost an act of memorization, you know, so that I can, I can do it in a way which is totally fluid, or at least approximates, you know, fluid, fluid reading. This has been wonderful, Marcy. You've dropped so many gems, like the show notes are going to be the bomb. I'm going to just say that. (laughs) The show notes are going to be awesome. And so, you know, we talked about um, adult literacy. We talked about workforce development. We touched on on that. But, But the big takeaway I want you guys to get out of this is the advocacy. And again, you are empowered. You have a right and you are a member of the IEP team and you are your child's number one advocate. Tune in next week, where we'll continue to bring you lived experiences and more unfiltered conversations with experts in the field around all things Black and dyslexic. Make sure you subscribe and follow the Black and Dyslexic podcast, where we educate, empower, and equip Black and underrepresented minorities. The Black and Dyslexic Podcast is partially funded by Morgan Cares and the Center for Urban Health Disparities Research and Innovation, awarded by the National Institute of Minority Health and Health Disparities. The Black and Dyslexic Podcast is sponsored by Dyslexia Advocation Incorporated, a 501c3 charitable organization located in Baltimore City, Maryland, whose mission is to equip parents of children with dyslexia and other language-based learning disabilities with the necessary tools to help their children become successful readers. You can find them on the web at www.soallcanread.org.